Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who finds himself sat in a rather sunny and glorious California. And today I'm joined by a Canadian TV pundit, Laura Babcock in Hamilton. How are you today, Laura? I'm pretty well, Royfield. Glad we're having this conversation. Dare I say it, uh, the rest of the world is looking somewhat aghast at Canada, one of the most stable, if not the, the most stable of all Western democracies, who's going through somewhat of an existential crisis. So in a week when Justin Trudeau has enforced the Emergency Powers Act, we ask what exactly is going on north of the border? Grady Trimble is live this morning in Ottawa, Canada with more. Grady, good morning to you. Good morning, Maria. Despite the Prime Minister invoking those extraordinary powers, we haven't seen much of a change here in terms of the posture of the police or the mood of the truckers. They tell us they are staying put. And this comes after we got an update from the Ottawa police yesterday. They say that the blockade has cost them about $14 million since the beginning, around $800,000 per day. They say there are more than 150 active criminal investigations into the blockade right now, and they've issued 3,000 tickets to people for bylaw violations like noise violations, idling for too long, uh, and having open fires, those kinds of smaller violations. Yesterday, the Ottawa police chief resigned. Uh, There has been criticism from people who are not participating in this protest that he doesn't, hasn't done enough to break up the protesters. But the truckers, Maria, continue to be at odds with how politicians are characterizing this as an illegal blockade or taking the city under siege. Uh, Laura, first off, can you give us some level of a timeline? Um, When did the truckers um, start their trucking um, into Ottawa? And ostensibly, what was the reason for the protest? Well, the first indicator we really got that this was going to be something was late January when they were speaking out against the Biden administration and Trudeau saying that trucker, the exemption that truckers had, where they didn't have to be vaccinated, um, suddenly that they were going to take away that exemption. And so what it effectively meant was that the remaining small percentage of truckers who hadn't been vaccinated wouldn't be able to cross the border and they would have to go into quarantine. And so that would obviously affect their ability to do their job. But even if Canada hadn't gone along with it, it still would have been in place on the U.S. side. So what I think people need to understand, and we're all learning this, we're all trying to navigate this terrible situation. Uh, but there, there was actually a, a move before this. There was something that happened before the pandemic where there was some Western uh, a, a guy from the West who wasn't happy with the Trudeau government and the climate or the, the carbon tax and some different policies started a convoy of trucks that weren't very successful, but they tried it a few years back. 
Uh, and then when the pandemic started, they tried another one uh, and it had a little bit more success, but it was really when the truckers lost their exemption that they tried it a third time. And this time there was such a perfect storm of issues going on in the country. We just had an unpopular election where Trudeau won again, but with the smallest seat or, or the smallest victory of any party that's ever formed government in Canada. So highly unpopular result. Uh, you had the pandemic, the fatigue of it. Canada and parts of Canada has been under lockdown longer than anywhere in the world. Then you had, of course, the this thing with the truckers and, and then the alt-right in the mix of it and all the rest of it. So it really was a perfect storm that started at the end of January, but there were elements of it, uh, smaller efforts that had started before. And this was just where they all came together, right time, right moment, uh, and the public was ready for it. So you said that this is that this is like a coalition. Can you give us a sense of maybe some of the various elements? It's called the truckers kind of convoy, but it's not just them. So what are the other elements who are involved in this protest? Yeah, it's actually, you know, 90% of Canadian truckers apparently do not support this so-called freedom convoy. But there are definitely some truckers who are part of it. A lot of it is just pickup trucks. And if you've been most places in Canada, that's a popular vehicle because of, you know, the, the kind of climate we have here. So a lot of it is pickup trucks, vans, things like that. But again, it started, The James Bowder is credited in part with starting the concept of the truck convoy. But quickly what we saw was that Canadians who felt as though the election that was held by Trudeau in the fall uh, was just a power grab. It wasn't really successful for Trudeau. He ended up with a minority government again. Uh, but they also knew that the popular vote had gone to the Conservative Party. So there was a lot of anger about the election results, a lot of, as I said, frustration with the pandemic itself, and also Western separatism, uh, which we've talked about before. There, There is a small movement to separate the West from the rest of Canada for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, you have these different groups. But what we started to see was that even truckers or, you know, people who were supportive of the cause and had vehicles were coming from the East Coast as well. And it was this idea of, Really, Canada Unity is the name of this party or this group that this this guy, this convoy guy started. Uh, and people started to think, okay, well, you know what? Uh, we're all unified in our frustration at the pandemic. So it started off initially as if these truckers can't go across the border, it's going to have supply chain problems and it's going to affect all of us. And that was the initial, initial messaging, Royfield. And there were actually conservative MPs who were fully on board with that. And, you know, some of us who watch these things warn very early on, don't, you know, don't ride that tiger because it's probably not anything to do with that. It's much bigger and much more vicious. And it has turned out to be such. And so what happened was they were on board with that. And then it morphed into this bigger grassroots. We're sick of the mandate. And then it turned into this. We're sick of the government and we're sick of Trudeau. And it moved towards almost this manifesto to overthrow the government and take Ottawa. And, and so we find ourselves 20 days later with our national capital completely uh, immobilized. And uh, they tried a few things around the borders to the US and they got stopped pretty quickly when they started to affect trade. Uh, but we still have our national capital immobilized. People can't function, the, the city's under siege. Could you give us a sense of that um, kind of graphically, physically? Um, where are the trucks and how have they managed to uh, paralyze the capital of Canada? Well, I, it, they are all around the downtown, so around those parliament buildings that everyone would be familiar with. They're kind of the iconic part of Ottawa. Ottawa is a pretty sleepy little city, really, compared to a city like Toronto or Montreal. Uh, but, you know, it, it's almost like a museum that you walk around. And so these trucks came into protests, which a lot of big protests happen down in that area. And people in Ottawa are used to it. You know, it's it's where people want to go to the foot of government and make their, their protests. But the thing that happened, I think, where I feel that has to be set up front here is that the way the police responded to the truckers was in in large part in solidarity with this anti-mandate, anti-vaccine, sick of the Trudeau government kind of, I mean, it was this populist thing. And there were video and video and video of police, you know, hugging them and helping them with their getting their gasoline. And all. So from the beginning, it looked as though the Ottawa police were on board. And then it started to become these big street parties and they brought their children and their bouncy castles. I mean, even today, the day after the emergency measures, they were roasting a full pig on a spit. You know, they brought in hot tubs and saunas and they turned it into a giant party 
for the disenfranchised, for the people who felt, uh, you know, that the wrong government was in power, who were sick of the vaccine and the mandates. And it turned into this, what looked, I think, to a lot of Canadians in the first couple of weekends, a big freedom festival. And people from all across the country made their way there. Uh, but then, you know, we started to find out the more nefarious elements behind it, all the U.S. money that was involved in it. Uh, and the government started to take some crackdown measures and, and realized, you know, this is far beyond what the Ottawa police chief thought. So he has since resigned. And it's far beyond what a lot of, I think, even conservatives thought it was about. And they've kind of moved away from it. And now they're urging for the truckers to leave. But the truckers are digging in. They basically created a little pseudo community. They've named it and they think they own downtown Ottawa. There were convoys or at least blockages not just in Ottawa. Can you give us some sense of the scale of those throughout Canada? Which bits of um, you know, commercial arteries have actually been blocked by the truckers other than uh, the centre of Ottawa? Well, they, they made a move towards the borders. And that was, uh, you know, they, they blocked at the Manitoba border uh, in a town called Emerson. And they blocked at the Alberta border to the U.S. And they blocked actually the Ambassador Bridge, which is the biggest border crossing and, you know, the biggest trading partnership in the world, right? So the one in Alberta was not moving in spite of the fact that Jason Kenney, who's a very conservative uh, premier, was getting rid of the any kind of mandates as fast as possible, right? But they still were at the Alberta border and they were blocking that. And that wasn't good for livestock and a whole bunch of other trade. But what really changed things was when they blocked the Ambassador Bridge. So the, the major automotive industry between the U.S. and Canada is right at that bridge, $50 million a day of trade goes across that bridge. And it was actually the the um, U, or the or association of the auto manufacturers that got the injunction to say, no, they're not doing this at the Ambassador Bridge, it's not on our watch. So they actually got the injunction. There was a standoff last Saturday where they, the police finally, you know, had a line and pushed back this group bit by bit and they got off the bridge. And, and that's what I think public sentiment turned a lot too, because people said, wait, you're, now you're causing 100,000 Canadians a day to not be working in these factories because you're blocking the Ambassador Bridge. And that was a bridge too far, if you'll pardon the pun. It was too much. And then what we saw was it was actually the day that the Emergency Measures Act was declared, the RCMP found a cache of weapons, body armor, high, like tons of magazines, you know, high capacity magazines, thousands of rounds of ammo and a plot to murder the police at the Alberta border crossing. So that, I think, set alarm across the country that there were some real, as they called them, violent cells that are now involved in this whole thing and they have other plans and so there was a, a, a vehicle that um, lost that w went missing that had a bunch of guns in it two days ago and people feared that it was making its way to Ottawa um, and it's not just I should say Royfield geographically it's not just the center of Ottawa there's an off there's another camp outside of the city that is much more militant that has the trucks surrounded like a fortress uh, where reporters have tried to get into and found it to be a much different vibe so, so there's a definite sense now that there is dark money internationally coming into this, that there are far-right groups exploiting this. There's even talk now about a U.S. convoy heading down to Washington uh, from across the U.S. in March 2nd, picking up on a lot of these tactics from Ottawa. So this is much, much bigger. It's on Fox News all the time now. You know, it's, it's become uh, kind of a nightmare. It's like January 6th in slow-moving <laughs> siege kind of mentality. Um, there hasn't been any deaths so far, but, you know, the, the police officers were targets for a murder plot and they just happened to, the RCMP happened to unearth it before it happened. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, so there are many elements to this, and you've talked about kind of uh, COVID fatigue, uh, mandate, frustration, anti-Trudeau sentiment. Give us a sense of what's been happening with the uh, mainstream right of Canadian politics. Um, initially, you said that um, some conservative politicians actually welcomed it. Um, give, t- tell us who those politicians are, um, how the Conservative Party is actually reacting to this. And now the fallout, now that the police chief has resigned and the Emergency uh, Powers Act has, has kind of come, come into force. Um, how is the body politic of right of centre, mainstream right of centre, uh, Canadian politics reacting to this crisis? Well, the leader of the party, Aaron O'Toole, was turfed uh, about a week and a half after the convoy rolled up in Ottawa. Some of the caucus, the Conservative, there was a leadership review coming, but some of the caucus got right on board with the truckers who were all in with the convoy, even though we saw in the first week swastikas being walked through downtown Ottawa. We saw Trump signs. We saw Confederate flags. There were people who were wearing, you know, the the stars. Uh, it, it was it was everything hate symbols you can imagine that were showing up. And yet still, because this was a populist thing and they had bouncy castles and there was lots of families and having barbecues, these conservative politicians saw the opportunity to side with this hugely um, popular movement, right? Like the the social media accounts and the size of this thing, now that all these, this perfect storm of, of um, the, the right have come together, yeah, a lot of these politicians, MPs, thought, you know, we will saddle up. They took selfies, they went for dinner with some of the organizers, all that kind of stuff. And then once the Ambassador Bridge uh, happened and trade got affected, that's the Conservatives' brand, right? They're supposed to be not just the party of law and order, they're supposed to be the party of fiscal responsibility. So they could not, they could not ride both sides of the fence once trade was being impacted at the Ambassador Bridge. That's when you start to see some of them just peel off and say, okay, now you've had, you've made your point, you've had your say, time to go, which of course is ineffectual. Aaron O'Toole, the party leader who had more uh, votes than Trudeau but didn't get enough seats, he was turfed for not being hardline enough. So he's left. So now the person who came into, uh, you know, the interim party leader, she is, she's said convoy go home. She's not going to be able to run for actual leader. That's part of their rules. But she's also, you know, today in question period attacking Trudeau full-throatedly, still trying to split that and, and stay on side of this freedom convoy to a certain extent. Pierre Polyèvre, who is the first one out of the gate to say he's officially running for prime minister, you know, or for the leader of the Conservative Party when they have their convention, he is 100% the poster boy of the convoy. He has, you know, very carefully talked up all of their points that I think are palatable to some Canadians and managed to avoid the seedier elements of it. And he keeps saying that he's for peaceful protests and lawful protests. But now that this Emergencies Act has been declared, even what might appear to be a peaceful protest on its on its face is now technically illegal. So, you know, he's got a lot of dancing he's going to have to do around that. So the conservative government in Canada, if they are wanting to get the list of the people involved in this freedom convoy nonsense, if they want to get that money, I mean, $17 million poured into this thing in the first week until it was stopped. And then they started another site of fundraising millions came in and then it was stopped. And now the government is freezing bank accounts to get this thing under control. So, I mean, the conservatives see money and they see lists of names and they see an opportunity uh, and they are going to align themselves, I fear, with the worst elements of this. Take us to the invoking of the Emergency Powers Act. First off, what is it? And then what was the straw that broke uh, Trudeau's back that he had to go to these extraordinary measures? 
Well, I think uh, it's important for historical context just to understand that in 1970, when the FLQ crisis was happening and there was a Im British ambassador who had been kidnapped and I, I believe murdered, it was a terror threat in Quebec. And so Trudeau's father was the prime minister at the time. He famously said, you know, just watch me. He put in what was called the War Measures Act, basically took over you know, took over the country. Um, and, and eventually after a couple of months, the FLQ was, was brought down to its knees. They lost public support and it was a success in certain ways, but certainly there was uh, a lot of baggage from it from people who lived in Quebec at the time. There is a lot of concern about the, you know, the loss of civil liberties. And so for Trudeau, 50 years later, to be the only other prime minister to invoke such a thing, they don't call it the War Measures Act anymore. They changed the name. It's called the Emergency Measures Act. Um, but, you know, he's saying he's not going to use force. He's trying to reassure Quebec that it's not going to be that way. We heard from the head of the Parti Québécois today, saying, you know, Quebec has a history with this. They're not interested at all. They don't have a problem. They don't have any convoys they're dealing with really in Quebec. They want nothing to do with it. Um, and some other provinces, even though they're having problems with convoys, politically don't want to have anything to do with the Trudeau family, you know, war measures kind of legacy. So what really was what broke the, the back uh, was the fact that the Ambassador Bridge got blocked. I mean, I can't emphasize enough how that was just too much of a target for these truckers. And the fact that it was only about, it wasn't even the big rigs that we see downtown Ottawa. It was really smaller vehicles and like maybe 50 of them or something. They just blocked the access to the bridge. And so, you know, it was, it was unconscionable that a major trade infrastructure could be blocked like that. So he had a window, Trudeau had a window and this is the bridge between Detroit and, and Windsor. Windsor. Yeah, it's where all the major car companies are right there in, you know, Motor City, Detroit, right? So this was this was just too big of a target and really wasn't fortified by the truckers. Um, but it, it, it was just absurd. You know, it was absurd that such a small group of people could be blocking such a trade corridor. So then the conservatives were like, OK, yeah, I know you can't block major infrastructure. And so Trudeau had a window uh, where he could do something extra. But again, if the Ottawa police hadn't been seen to be partying with the convoy, I mean, even today, after the Emergency Measures Act was invoked yesterday, they were they were bringing in gasoline for these trucks. I mean, there's a there's a sense of complete cognitive dissonance going on. And and either the police are supportive of it or they're anti-vaxxers or they hold all right positions. I mean, nobody knows. Uh, but what we do know is that Trudeau is carefully positioning it to say, and I heard the, this 50 times today from all of his ministers, the police didn't have the tools before. Now that the police have the tools, it's up to the police to use the tools. They're giving the, a lot of cover to the police, but I'm not sure that the police have the will to use the tools. So it's, it's really going to be interesting to see whether or not these federal tools, meaning freezing accounts and, and, you know, and getting rid of licenses and insurance and stuff, if they're going to be sufficient for these truckers to leave. So far, they've said, forget it, we're not moving. Just take us through the, spe the specific parts of the act which uh, Trudeau is um, threatening the, the truckers with. Yeah, I think that the major blow was when he actually had Christian Freeland, the deputy prime minister, and she is widely more popular than Trudeau, uh, I, would, I would say at this stage. Uh, she came on and she's an economics expert and she said, listen, uh, we are going to freeze the corporate accounts of anyone. She says, consider yourself warned. If you and there, this was in a big address to the nation that happened, I, I guess it was on Valentine's. Um, she said, you know, if you if you have a truck that's a part of this thing, you will have your corporate accounts frozen. You will risk losing your licensing. You will risk uh, losing your insurance coverage. Basically, we are going to cripple you financially if you're part of this. They'd already frozen all the fundraising vehicles for this this movement, um, with this siege really was what it is. But now they said, listen, if we if your truck is even there, if it's being rented or whatever, you're screwed, right? To so put a pressure on people financially. But I think what we've seen from, so that's the main thing, you know, Trudeau's not going to use force. They're just going to, they, they gave out pamphlets today saying, now you got to go. And the truckers are like, yeah, whatever. You know, we don't, they put it, they put a toilet in the middle of the street and started stuffing these notices in the toilet for the cameras. Right. So they are defiant. Some have said that they will die for the cause. They're radicalized uh, and they've got these giant rigs and they seem to have some sort of tacit support from law enforcement. They're even getting escorted more trucks into the downtown. Like it, it's maddening. Uh, it sounds ridiculous to say all this out loud, but it's what's happening. 
Give us some kind of sense of the level of support um, that the truckers actually have with the Canadian populace. Are are there any polls which we can kind of point to? Because one of the interesting things uh, doing my research was that over 80% of Canadians are actually kind of fully vaccinated. Are we talking about a kind of a rump 20% of Canadians who don't believe uh, that COVID is a thing and, and fundamentally these are the Canadians that, that, that support this. These are, you know, COVID denialists and these are kind of far right elements. Um, do we have any kind of sense of um, nationally um, how many people are behind this protest? Yeah. People have been using that same math, right? If if this was initially against vaccines and vaccine mandates, well, 80 plus percent of us are fully vaccinated. So there is not a giant appetite for getting rid of all mandates in the country. Although, you know, we're fatigued and we want to get on with life like everywhere else. Um, so it is a small group. But what's what's significant about it is that there are elements of their messaging that have a broader appeal. So when they're talking just about, you know, being sick of government, that is something that is broadly appealing, even if you're vaccinated, right? We had an election that nobody wanted. Um, Trudeau shouldn't have called it. And so Canadians are tired, they're frustrated, they're sick of the government, they're mad at Trudeau. And so even if they voted for Trudeau, there's probably an element that's like, yeah, I want my freedom too. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this government. Like, let's let those politicians in Ottawa know what we think. So, so there is a narrative that is more romantic almost and engaging. And then when you see kids with their face painted with Canadian flags and they're on bouncy castles and having barbecues and people are saying this is the most Canadian they've ever felt. It's almost like they've managed to combine a very nefarious agenda with um, this kind of, you know, Canada Day vibe. And so I think for a lot of Canadians and certainly on all of my social media feeds, you know, there's so many people who I know are not anti-vaccine and are not anti-government per se are tacitly supporter of freedom. So when you have such big words like freedom on a label, uh, it's easy for people to say, well, I support freedom. Well, who doesn't support freedom? And, you know, the media has been complicit in this to a certain extent because they they, they just kept calling it that, right? They, they treated it like a cause célèbre as it was moving across the country. And some of us were saying, don't carry their PR water for them call it a trucking convoy but you know if they said they were the super fantastic best convoy in the world would you say that too 55 times a day so i mean they got this free branding of this canadiana kind of post-pandemic vibe uh, and so i i think that people might say no i'm not supportive of the siege of ottawa but they might deep down be supportive of this idea of sticking it to the government and i think that's where this becomes such a risk for our democracy uh, this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic looks primarily at US and UK politics, but every now and then we like to include our Canadian cousins into the debate, into the discussion. Now is the time if you're in the audience, and there are a goodly few of you, um, why don't you hold your hand up and we'll invite you up on stage to put a question to Laura Babcock, who is our kind of Canadian TV pundit and expert about all things Canadian, definitely when it comes to politics anyway. Do you think one of the lasting effects of this is going to be that maybe Canadians are seen as, as very moderate all the way throughout the Western world and Canadian politics in a kind of US prism skews to the left. Do you think that um, Canadians' complacency when it comes down to looking at how their politics is much more consensual as opposed to America, that, you know, Canada's going to be, you know, has been ripped out of that level of complacency. You know, we are seeing the maple leaf next to swastikas. We are mm-hmm. seeing that Canadian society can be paralyzed by this uh, rump of um, disaffected Canadians who probably have help from um, some certain aspects of American society and politics. How is this going to affect Canadians' view of their consensual politics going forward, would you say? That's terrifying. And it it feels, uh, for for people who weren't following the rise of the alt-right in this country and some of these other themes, it's been a shock. You know, and I think the moment that most shocked most Canadians from my reading of the of the zeitgeist was when 
Terry Fox, a Canadian hero, like bar none, nobody in Canada has any issues with Terry Fox. He was a, a, a young man who got cancer and, and tried to run across Canada back in the 80s to raise money for cancer. And he and we all watched him every night on the news as kids, and he died. And his statue is in Ottawa, and they put an upside-down Canadian flag in it when they arrived in Ottawa. And that, that struck a chord with Canadians of what? What on earth is happening? How could anyone defile Terry Fox? And so that got people engaged in the conversation. And what they've seen since is the small groups of trucks being able to shut down trade and, and most importantly, shut down the seat of our government, which is, which is pretty stunning. Even, you know, I can't imagine if this convoy goes to Washington, which I hope it doesn't, but I can't imagine the DC police or the US government or the FBI or anybody else allowing them to take root and to and to sort of set up camp and call it their own whatever their name for the place is i mean it's just bizarre so i think canadians are looking at it and saying wait how did this american style insurrectionism far right um stuff q and conspiracies are part of this right if you look at all the social channels it's it's bananas how did this level of what we consider kind of u.s crazy end up here and and you'll remember uh roy for the last time i was on with you i was on with another uh, canadian uh, political expert much bigger than i am and we had a bit of a disagreement because coming from hamilton where we're the you know the hate capital of the country Country, I had been in the face of some of these protests or some of these uh, yellow vesters and white supremacists at my own city hall in the last couple of years. So I, I was sort of very aware that there were some elements that were burgeoning up. Um, and her opinion was they really had no power in Ottawa. So, you know, it, it was a, a much to do about nothing. We're not the U.S. And now, unfortunately, we're seeing, well, actually, no, they're, they're co-opting a lot of U.S tactics they've got their own tactics they've got us money they've got tucker carlson on board and all the rest of it and so unfortunately canadians are realizing we're not better than america we're not more democratic we're not impervious to seditionists we are um maybe a little too vulnerable because of our our own ego uh, and and it's being played out and it's it's of national embarrassment and it's going to hurt us in terms of investment and trade and and the global brand for years to come as it should it's a disaster it shouldn't have happened uh, one last question from me before I throw it out to uh, the new people we have with us on stage. Maxime Bernier is the leader of the People's Party of Canada. Um, I take it that he's been all behind this protest. Yeah, he's he's trying to co-opt it, you know. But Pierre Polyev, I think that the CP, the Conservative candidate, uh, has been more effective of, of aligning himself with it with videos and everything else. He really saw the opportunity. And he's taken it. Uh, so I think Maxine Bernier is almost a little bit sidelined by some of these guys. And, and the crazy thing about this convoy is that if you talk to them and reporters, I'm, I'm basing this on news reports, many people think they're the leaders of this thing. There, there isn't a, I mean, occasionally they have these meetings and they do these press conferences, but it's a sense of it's, it's far more destabilized than that. And even though they're well organized and they've got funding and they've got, you know, there's some real military tactics that people are seeing, it's almost as though if, if the right leader came along, if the Trump type figure came along, they could really consolidate it into something um, pretty, pretty shocking in terms of Canada tilting from that left position into something much more to the right. And, and that's what I think the concern is. Is there going to be a charismatic figure that can come in and pull all of this together uh, and uh, and then we'll be in a very different place. And that might be Pierre Polyev. I don't think it'll be Maxime Bernier. I just don't think he's got the clout. But if Polyev is able to position himself as you know, the sympathizer to their, their grievance and to their pain points, um, but not fully embracing all of their, their tactics, he might just be able to um, really put this all behind him and, and come at Trudeau or, or Christian Freeland, whoever runs in the next election. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Uh, we have hundreds of shows where we look at US and UK politics online. So we don't go to a podcatcher of your choice and go download an episode. We've called up some people on stage. First, I'm going to go to you, uh, Gladius. Hey, thank you. I live in the UK and most of my friends and families are vaccinated. But uh, however, I have a few friends and families who are not vaccinated. And, um, you know, just because they are not vaccinated, 
you know, I don't hate them or, you know, so I, I still love them. Right. Uh, so it's, my question is like, um, one thing is purely based on economics. So if 70 to 80% of the population is vaccinated in a country, so what is the risk of unvaccinated people moving around? The virus is still spreading. And is it, yes, another thing is the hospital, they can admit in hospital, they can actually increase the, um, you know, cost for, to, to, to take care of them. Uh, however, does it worth actually fighting, um, you know, for keeping the mandate for try to establish 100% vaccine rate? Yeah, that is my question. Thank you. I don't think Canada is going for that kind of target anymore. And while there are a large percentage who are double vaccinated, the number isn't as high for the booster shot. And we just had Omicron rip through the country. It's finally, finally in decline. So I don't think that the Canadian government are going to try to push for, you know, uh, some sort of utopia around vaccination. I think there we're starting to hear messaging that we've heard around the world of it's time to live with COVID, to expect a certain amount of disruption to, you know, have a certain vaccination schedule, but we're not going to keep everything shut. And so we saw, and, the, and I'm sure the truckers are going to claim this as a victory. We've seen uh, the province of Ontario, even though the premier supports the um, emergencies measures, because of course, Ottawa in, and the Ambassador Bridge are both within Ontario. Uh, so he supports Trudeau, which he never usually does, but you know, it's, it's a crisis. But we're even seeing Ontario move ahead on, on dropping some of the mandates and dropping some of the restrictions ahead of schedule. And we've seen other provinces out west almost completely drop them. So you know, Canada is not going to stay in this in this heavily restricted space. And that's what is kind of brilliant about the timing of this convoy from a public relations point of view. The mandates were already easing off. So what they've taken is two years worth of rage and frustration. And they've said, you know, end it now when they're going to end anyway within a month and a half. Maybe they sped it up a bit. But yeah, Canada is not going to go for 100% vaccination and they're not going to stay like this. They're, you know, the new normal is going to be live with the thing. And I think most of the world is taking that same approach. Dr. Dan, friend of the pod, you're up next, sir. Yeah, great conversation. I was listening. Um, I, I had a session um, within Clubhouse out of my club, quick plug for my club, Health and Communications, where we talked on Saturday and some of the folks in this audience and that I pinged into the room. Um, about uh, the Ottawa crisis and uh, what that means in the implication for a democracy um, uh, in the United States and other countries, uh, what copycats will look like for, and the interpretation for national security, healthcare, and, and uh, economics around it, uh, even the stock market. Uh, we got in a good detail. I guess my question for you is, um, do you feel that... Uh, this has now opened up an opportunity in addition to the uh, impacts of misinformation where there's a 10 or 15 percent population of dissenters who are pushing a certain agenda and then get supplied or supported by um, other countries, i.e. even in the states here, supporting a cause that misrepresents the uh, information, i.e. it's not about ma the mass mandates and and others, this this has a a veil that is um, that people are not either realizing or that we need to pierce clearly that this is undermining democracy um, and what the implications mean for national security. I just want to know your thoughts on that. Well, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I think that uh, a lot of people who followed the investigation into Russian interference in the last election in the U.S. and the previous election and, and the disinformation campaign and, these, and the stoking of tensions in the destabilization of Western democracies, um, I think all of that is at play here. You know, we have, the, there have been confirmations about foreign funding. We've had U.S. senators speak, Ted Cruz, and I think the governor of Florida speak in support of the convoy. We've had it sort of on Tucker Carlson's major shows on Fox back to back. Uh, there is definitely foreign interference in this. And, uh, and the idea of, and Reifeld said it off the top, you know, if Canada is one of the most stable Western democracies, 
then what does that portend for the rest? It means that these individuals and these organizations that might have different grievances but a same goal of destabilization and of changing up the way things are being done in the West, uh, they are working together. They're, they're working together in the open. They're working together in the dark web. They're working together in all kinds of different ways. But I think the Ottawa lesson for the world should be uh, – don't take it for granted. Don't underestimate them that because some of them wear horns and pound their chests and look ridiculous like we saw on January 6th. That's not what's really the threat. You know, it's not a couple of wackadoos who say ridiculous things and put out crazy manifestos. It's all of the money and foreign actors behind it who are trying to destabilize and break down Western democracies. If I can just for a moment, and this is what I, you know, this is my bias having been a journalist and being married to a, a news reporter who was covering the Ambassador Bridge, um, is that we are seeing an attack on our media in Canada that we have never seen. We heard the chance of fake news, you know, in the U.S. We saw all the journalists who have died around the world in the last couple of years and, and certainly how they're treated in the Soviet and Russia. But we've never seen in Canada where reporters were being threatened, where they are being, you know, encouraged in some places to get security, to hide their, their, their news vans. It has never happened here before. So when I look at the erosion and the threat to Western democracies, um, I look at well, how are you treating your free press? Because if your free press is being maligned and and marginalized and threatened with violence, you know that that to me tells me that there's there's something bigger and scarier at risk here. And the fact that Canadians watch the media get harassed at these covering these events and they don't stand up to defend them, I think is chilling. So there are a lot, I'm not going to blame it all on Trump, but what he did was, was normalize and unleash a whole bunch of stuff um, very cleverly for his ends. And what it has done is it has empowered uh, a lot of changes to our society that I think if we stepped at 30,000 feet and looked at, we'd be like, what the hell is this? This doesn't even look like a Western democracy with some of what's going on. Just on that point, uh, talking about it doesn't look like a Western democracy, Laura, the chief of police in Ottawa resigned yesterday. And you've talked about the, the complicit nature that uh, law enforcement has actually taken towards these protests. Uh, what made him resign specifically yesterday? Was it actually these charges that mm, you could have been doing a whole lot more? Give us a real sense of that crisis and why he uh, decided to go. He begged for help. He begged for help uh, at, a, at a police board meeting a couple of weeks ago. He said, I cannot, I need help. I, I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough. And, and you know, people are like, yeah, but you're, you're getting, you know, millions of dollars in a police budget, do more. But I think what, as we look at it now, uh, there wasn't the will on his force. Whatever his leadership capacities were or were not, he lost control. And he asked for help. And a lot of the, you know, the country was like, well, you know what, just get your, get your guys in line. This, there's, it's just a big street party. What are you complaining about? You know, be tougher. And he just, you know, it was the police board meeting. They announced his resignation, right? And, and he had, had become famous somewhat for an approach to a passive policing or community based less enforcement. Um, but that was clearly not the tactic that was needed once this, once the Ottawa truckers got entrenched. It just seemed he didn't have control of his police force. So, I mean, that's, that's another point, right? Does it look like a Western democracy when the police chief doesn't seem to have control over his own police force and the police force is instead siding with lawlessness? I mean, stuff was going on in the streets of Ottawa for all of the world to see with cops standing by doing nothing, if not, you know, taking selfies with them. We even have police outside of Ottawa as truckers were moving in on the weekends to join the big party, talking to them and being videotaped doing traffic stops and saying, oh, well, yeah, you're going to have a good time when you get to Ottawa, you know, park down here. And I mean, it's, it's just insane. And so I think what finally was the break for this police chief was when Ottawa residents decided a few days ago they'd had enough, not one more truck was going to make it downtown on their watch, and they started doing human barricades on the major arteries into the downtown. Literally, there's a scene with a guy with a bike standing in front of a semi-truck for four hours saying, you know, you'll have to run over me before you bring one more truck into our siege city. So, I mean, <laughs> how do you stay police chief when your own residents have to defend their own city? Uh, Laurie Haskins-Barber, um, you're a Canadian. Um, you're up next, Laurie. 
Thank you, Roy Fell. Good to speak to you, Laura. I'm from your neck in the woods in Brantford, Ontario. So uh, <laughs> I, I understand, you know, all that is happening. I do have some questions for you. It has been said that it isn't only the alt-right. Mm -hmm. um, it is also the healthcare workers, the alt-left, the yoga teachers. I don't want to stereotype yoga teachers, but um, <laughs> as well, meeting in the middle with these terrorists, because I'm not going to call them truckers, because that's my other question for you, is mm -hmm. that none of the organizers of this supposed convoy are truckers, have anything to do with the trucking industry. They hired a truck driver to drive them across the country, mm -hmm. and they encouraged others, and yet the media speaks nothing about that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there's a couple of points, excellent points. So as as uh, Roy Field identified off the top it's con it's complex you know and it's fluid but one of the elements of this madness is the QAnon conspiracy and to your point about our yoga teachers uh, uh, and I understand what you're saying there, there have been I think evidence we saw maybe even in the Facebook hearings that happened in Capitol Hill a while back but there's certainly been reporting on the fact that there is a a bridge between naturopathic uh, and that kind of stuff with some QAnon stuff. It's actually used as a bit of a of a tactic by QAnon uh, to to kind of bring people in. So now would I call them, uh, you know, the alt-left? I don't know, but there certainly is a broader group of people who support this idea of, you know, government conspiracies and a need for, uh, you know, believing what they see on Facebook and all those pernicious algorithms and all of that. So, no, it is not truckers, 90% of the truckers in the country, professional truckers do not want to have anything to do with this convoy. They're sick of it and they're sick of what it's doing to their reputation and to supply chains and everything else. Um, but is there a support in all areas, uh, you know, of the political spectrum? Probably because of some of those broader themes that are kind of enticing. I mean, you've been locked down for two years and you've lost your business. I got in a discussion with a with a, um, a food truck owner who I, who I hired in the pandemic and is a friend of the family, but he had had enough. His business had gone through so much. He was in full support of the truckers, right? And so I think that there are a lot of people who are not just all right at all, who are sick of the mandates, sick of the lockdown, sick of the economic devastation, sick of the mental, you know, mental health crisis that we're going through as a world. Uh, and they are looking for someone who will speak up for them. And that's a very, very powerful uh, aphrodisiac almost, right? I mean, if, if you think that the government has failed you in every possible way, regardless of your political stripe, you're going to look for something that provides a, a bit of a finger to the government. And that's why I say I think the big risk here is someone being charismatic enough to get all of these disparate groups and, and people from across the spectrum into sort of a Unite Canada party, which is the name of one of these guys who are behind the convoy or whatever they're going to call it. But I think that, you know, we're, we're foolish if we think that it's only going to appeal to racists or only going to appeal to uh, people who hate Trudeau. I think there's a bigger appeal than that. Thank you for that, Laurie. Uh, Landis B, you're up next. Hi, Laura. Um, yeah, I think you're you're right that there's a broader appeal. I, I'm a little, I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding exactly why you think that that is such a like an obvious and inherent evil. I, I mean, just quoting from a, a fellow member of the Liberal Party of Canada, which is Trudeau, the Prime Minister's party. Uh, he said, if we forget about the demonstrations and we forget about the convoy for just a second and look at that policy for what it is. This is a policy that now goes against the World Health Organization's recommendation and for which no epidemiological studies and projections have been provided. Uh, so it seems to me like you're admitting that there may be some people with legitimate grievances here, even if you disagree with their kind of civil disobedience gone too far tactics. Um, but my, my more specific question is, you know, it seems like you have a general fear of right wing populism seizing power uh, and, and subverting democratic norms. And I, I share that fear. But isn't there not also maybe a more clear and present danger in Trudeau's invocation of emergency powers? And it seems like his willingness to stomp his, his heel down, because as someone who generally supports democratic norms and who generally supports a, the idea of, of kind of free discourse and people's ability to support things as they will, seizing bank accounts and freezing bank accounts of individuals who donate to a movement uh, to me seems like a bit of an anti-democratic encroachment. 
And I personally would have been appalled if, for example, because you appealed to American politics earlier, if Trump had been president during the George Floyd disruptions and, and protests and had declared a national state of emergency predicated upon the destruction of the, you know, the, the, where there was violence in those protests where people were calling them riots and seized the bank accounts of anyone who donated to Black Lives Matter. So, you know, when, when you're saying this is such a threat, when you're saying the media needs to not leave any room for sympathy for these individuals, less I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Well, I didn't say that last bit. Well, so, so no, is there not a secondary danger? I've listened carefully. The danger of people being, yeah, there's being there's multiple dangers. There's multiple dangers at play. So I agree with you. If the war, you know, the Emergency Measures Act, it's rebranding. If Trudeau uses it, um, any stretch beyond what he has said he will. I think there's a huge risk to civil liberties. You know, I, I'm supportive of many organizations that use protests as a necessary way to be heard in this country. You know, Canada might has a parliamentary democracy, which means if you get a prime minister who has a majority, which Trudeau doesn't at the moment, but when you do, the PMO's office is you know almost more powerful than the president, except for the economy and the military. But the, the decision-making power, the lack of checks and balances is huge. So the idea of invoking something that erodes civil liberties, I'm completely opposed to. And I wish it didn't come to this. And I wish Trudeau had shown better leadership and he better explain why only him and his dad seem to need to do this, right? So there's all kinds of concerns that I have on that front. Do I consider the erosion of civil liberties a huge concern? Of course. Um, and I'm not a liberal, by the way, if, if, if that's a thought out there. I'm not. I'm not partisan. I consider it if it's, if they, I mean, imagine, just imagine if there's one single scene downtown Ottawa of any kind of violence against a family or like this can go sideways for Trudeau 10,000 different ways. It's a huge risk. It didn't need to happen. He could have dealt with it better and more effectively sooner. This is a failure by him. It's a failure by, by Premier Ford. Uh, it's a failure by the mayor of Ottawa. I mean, you know, a pox on all their houses. So let's just put that aside for a second. Is there a deep concern? about the rise of a far right that wants to destabilize Western democracies that we've all been witnessing for the last 20 years, especially the last five or six, 100%. And I, don't, I don't need to look back 100 years of history and see a pandemic and a world war and what we're seeing right now on the Ukraine border and not have serious concerns about how fragile democracies are. Are they perfect? Of course not. Uh, is Trudeau a perfect prime minister? No. If anything, he's shown himself to be unable to deal with a threat, a domestic terror threat so far. So yeah, Trudeau looks bad, but I, I'm very much in fear of fascism. I'm very much in fear of our taking for granted our democracy and of civil liberties being impugned, right? So, you know, I, I don't think we're that far apart in our concerns here, um, but I'm not going to engage in whataboutism too much because the fact is this is complicated. Trudeau has failed. The conservative premier of Ontario has failed. The mayor of Ottawa has failed. Some of the members of the conservative party have gone too far in this. I mean, it is a hot mess. And what we need to do is to protect the free press, to protect civil liberties, to make sure that there's not lawlessness on our streets. I mean, and this is where we are now. So we have to deal with the lawlessness and we have to make damn sure that any measures that the prime minister uses are, if not justified, he's penalized for and his party, you know, in, in infinity. Uh, nobody wants anybody to, to take any more power in this situation. We want the lawlessness in our nation's capital to end. Roger, uh, you're, up, you're up next, sir. You look, I, I'm listening to, to what's being laid out here. And I think what we're missing is that governments around the world have decided to go tyrannical and uh, use medical coercion enforcing mandates and people are rebelling against that and so before we go and label people terrorists right i think that's a pretty irresponsible word to use uh i, I think what we should look at is you know what gave rise to this in the first place and i will say that as somebody that doesn't identify with the right and certainly don't identify with the left it warms my heart to hear what laura is saying about not only the, the 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 truckers uh that are uh that are uh you know pulling off this convoy but the support that they're getting financially and then when she said that the police are in support of it that warms my heart we see this so differently i i i think that the the root cause here is government run amok believing that they can uh rule over people 
and 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 violate medical autonomy for human beings with and 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 I say this is somebody that's been vaccinated. When you start issuing these mandates, people are supposed to rise up. And I hope that there's people listening in this room. I hope that there's people listening around the world and watching what's going on with those truckers. And I hope that people get influence from them to understand that you have a duty when the government is going too far to rise up against that. And the truckers are not the bad guys here. The government of Canada is the bad guys. The governments around the world are the bad guys. They are the bad guys. And when people are standing up and they are standing up for their individual freedom, for their medical autonomy, they should be praised. They should not be called terrorists. And I reject the notion that people would call somebody a terrorist because they would stand up for their individual liberty. That's ridiculous. So the I think you're referring to the the caller from Bramford who used that description. Yeah, and and you know what? The the People who were at the border in Alberta that had body armor and magazines and a, a murder plot for police, they qualify as domestic terror, right? But are they the mass majority of people in the country who are supporting these truckers? Of course not. And, and we've already defined the fact this isn't really a truckers thing, right? They, they took trucks as a tactic, but it's not just about truckers as a, as a subgroup. It is much more broad than that. And as they were rolling the freedom, so-called freedom convoy, across the country, people were on bridges and overpasses cheering them on. So is there an incredible need for people to be heard after two years of having their, you know, their lives made so small and lose their business? Businesses. And some of the mandates have been unfair and unjustly put in. And there have been some industries that have taken it way harder uh, than others. Some have gotten away with a lot and others have been crushed. I mean, there's a whole reason for righteous anger and pushing against government overreach. And I'm, you know, I am somebody who has spent my entire life going, taking truth to power. And trust me, the politicians who know me can't stand me because I never get off their backs. There's, that's not the same, though, as holding a, a city, a downtown where people can't get um, ambulances to their apartments, where they're blaring these air horns 24-7. People are having mental breakdowns. They can't. Businesses have shut. The, the big mall in Ottawa had to shut. They're causing economic damage. There's lawlessness. So, yeah, you know, should people around the world say we should be able to stand up and, and express ourselves around freedom? I personally look at the vaccine as the pandemic is a social issue. So as a member of a society, I'm going to get vaccinated, even though I didn't want to put that needle in my arm. My family didn't want to do it. We did it because we're part of a civil society. And that's what was necessary to not collapse our healthcare system. So whatever people's approaches or view of the vaccines and the mandates, damn right, we should never let government uh, overreach. We should always challenge everything. Where does the rule of law come in? Where is the protest too far? You're not going to hear me support a protest on the far left that smashes stuff. I'm not supportive of violence and protest. I'm not supportive of breaking the law. So we can have a conversation about the fact that some governments around the world have gone too far on certain things, that next time we a pandemic rolls around, we've got to approach this differently and more equitably. Like, yeah, have at it. That's why I'm saying so many Canadians were supportive of this when it was a freedom convoy about the vaccine mandates, when it morphed into a seizure of our capital and the stoppage of our major trade thing and caused 100,000 people to lose their, their gig. That's a different story. So I think this is about... How do we express our frustration in a time of incredible angst and economic strife and inflation and conflict globally? Uh, some of us are, you know, for doing it loudly, but, but peacefully and legally, and others have taken other tactics. And some of them, you know, when you, when you got a plan to kill the police and you're, you're fully armed and you're blocking a border, that's domestic terrorism. So I don't want us to get all caught up in semantics and labels. It's about, how does how do we all learn from what's happening in Ottawa? How do you handle a crisis of a, of a frustrated population that has some nefarious actors manipulating it and, and going to illegal means to do it? I mean, it, it is a complicated mess. TRP, uh, you've been waiting patiently on stage. Um, I need you to be incredibly brief because we're going to so wrap up the recording. One second, sir, because we're going to wrap up the recording of the podcast on the hour. 
obviously there's a lot of people in this room uh, some pe people are very passionate about uh, the symbolism of what this means whether this is uh, civil disobedience uh, whether this is um, legitimate protest or whether this is holding people to siege so I'm going to keep this room open but just for the sake of the podcast I'm going to uh, try and get in TRP uh, you've been waiting uh, diligently uh, make your point okay how, how are you doing today Laura I'm great thank you Hey, thank you for joining today. Um, it was been very interesting uh, watching this on TV. I was actually uh, waiting till I saw a Confederate flag on TV, and it didn't it didn't take very long at all. Um, <laughs> uh, being uh, black and in the states, I um, the intersectionality of like white supremacist organizations or thought or supporters and movements like this is always so common to me. Um, specifically in Canada, I, I, is this just exported U.S. white supremacy taking advantage of this to help further this issue or further other issues? Or what specific things are in Canada relative to its specific political history are funny, are, are fueling this? Because I know mm -hmm. Ottawa specifically is one of the whitest major cities in Canada. Right. Um, yeah. And all the other cities. Yeah. It's specifically where it's located. You know, most people who immigrate into the in, into Canada, Toronto, they're in Montreal, they're in BC, they're not necessarily in, the, in where Ottawa's at. What specifically from Canadian is fuel, from Canadian history is fueling this, especially with its ties to white supremacy? Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, if you look at, for instance, the Proud Boys, which was, you know, uh, very involved in U.S. white supremacy, I think the founder was originally from Canada, right? So I, I don't know that there's necessarily a hard border between these groups working together. In fact, uh, as Royfield and I have discussed many times, once you get past the middle of our vast country, it almost feels like the orientation should be more north-south than east-west. Uh, so Alberta is very, very much in some cultural ways like Texas, for instance. You know, it's the Texas of the north. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's, you know, white supremacy, racism. Canada has a huge problem with it. How we treat indigenous people is, is uh, beyond shameful. Yeah. I mean, we're still yeah, unearthing I'm, I'm graves of, of children from residential schools. You know, it, we... We are so, a country yeah, steeped in racism and colonialism. Do, do and, uh, you know, you don't have to go very far to find people who like support the, these the anti-immigration positions. We even had a national candidate, Maxine Bernier, run on a platform of saying, you know okay. what, uh, you know, we, we don't want to have that kind of influence in our country or enough of that. And, and in fact, the, the prime minister who lost to Trudeau, I think part of the reasons why Harper lost after being a pretty successful prime minister was that he tacked so far to the right that he started to dog whistle about a snitch line for un-Canadian practices and, you know, and, and talked about old stock Canadians. I mean, my family, our empire loyalists are about as old stock as you can get if you're not indigenous. Um, but I found it wildly offensive and, and racist. And apparently it was, they'd hired someone who had worked on the, you know, far right politics in Australia to do that kind of campaign tactic towards the end. And there was a repudiation of that. People were like, forget that. That's too dark. And then Trudeau came out with his sunny ways bit and he won a majority. So, I mean, I, I don't want to say for one second that this is being fueled by American racists. We have plenty of racists right here in Canada for a whole host of reasons, right? Um, you know, and a pandemic. In fact, uh, I'll just make this point. I was able to moderate the anti-hate summit that my city ran back in May. And we had international experts around racism, hate, and white supremacy, and the rest of it. And one of the things that one of them said that really stuck with me, and it could have been even the Southern Poverty Law Center in the U.S., they said, where fear exists, hate organizes. So when you think about the fear from the pandemic, from you know, these government mandates from the in, the inequality around businesses and restrictions and inflation and all of it, uh, you're going to see hate grow because it is a response to fear. And so, you know, Canada has um, plenty of history of racism and it also has a lot of fear going on right now and out west where this trucker convoy started from and some of the organizers are from, they had seen a depletion in the oil economy, right? They, the, the, the big years crashed uh, and there was a lot of anger. And then when Trudeau comes along and puts in a carbon tax, which they see as, you know, extra pain on top of what's happened to the, the oil sands, there is a tremendous amount of rage. So, you know, all that stuff mixes up 
you know, the question is, how do we deal with it in societies without letting, you know, the, the worst of our societies and the worst racists and, you know, and all the rest of it take control? And that's one of the things that Trudeau has been criticized for was that he said he he called them racist, right? When the when the swastikas were up downtown Ottawa the first weekend, he he sort of put the unvaccinated and racist in sort of a pot together, not unlike Hillary Clinton talking about what was it? She said the the not the dissidents, I forget her name, the deplorables basket of deplorables. deplorables. Yeah, it was almost a deplorables kind of a comment and that did not help at all. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but you know the roots of racism in Canada go all the way back. Um, there you go. Um, that has been uh, this uh, week's Mid-Atlantic, a somewhat impassioned and informed conversation around the symbolism of the truckers' protest in Canada. I'd like to thank Laura Babcock, a friend of the podcast, TV pundit over there in Hamilton in Canada, uh, for being our point person and asking and, and answering um, some very tricky questions from people on stage. I'd like to thank those people who came up for their continued support of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. If you're listening to this at home, why don't you uh, download the Clubhouse app? And then when you do that, it means that uh, you can then be warned and you can actually be alerted when we go live with these uh, live rooms and you can be part of the podcast live. So uh, download that Clubhouse app. When you get onto the Clubhouse app, then find the Mid-Atlantic Club and Clubhouse and then you can be part of the live recording of the podcast well, I say this every time. Don't forget, folks, left to center politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonize our right leaning brothers and sisters. What we try and do is win them over with the strength of our argument. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.